out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of the American bass band Madder Rose, because I recently spoke to one of the main members, Billy Cote, to find out much more about life, love, poetry, and all that other groovy stuff that happens when you're in a band. Anyway, after several minutes of casual chat, that has now been edited out. We got down to that very exciting subject that were the early formative years and those musical, yes, moments that shaped a person's life. Anyway, Billy, it's over to you. Wow. So, like, right from right from the start, because um, I'm just old enough to remember, I don't remember seeing the Beatles on TV or anything, but I remember the excitement around this thing called the Beatles. And my sister had a lot of the singles, like the Capitol singles that they put out. And immediately I was like, oh my God, that the the melody, you know what I mean? Like um, just the way they they say like it. Um, I think, okay, their harmonic content, like when they sing the harmonies, you know what I mean? That like that clicked with me right away. And I was like, oh these guys are doing this lovely thing and they're they're being lauded for it you know everyone loves them so you know that has an effect on a person but i yes. noticed that i noticed in the back of my head that i could make up little songs even when i was a kid you know like i could make up songs that sort of sounded like a beatles song you know and um so right from then i, I just said oh i can just make up songs you know what i mean so yeah, I think I'm straying. I'm straying from your your point. Like the music that first in, influenced me was the Beatles, more so like the Monkees. You remember the Monkees from America? Absolutely, and, we we loved that. You know the the soundtrack, the opening credits. You know, hey hey, we're the Monkees. And also there was the Banana Splits, which again for a young person that was just the most exciting song. You know that you could hear. You know those really punchy. Wow, that's a very you know we're going to sing that for the next five minutes kind of thing you know what I mean it was very hard not to be excited and then seeing you know Sweet doing Ballroom Blitz or Blockbuster or Gary Glitter doing you know Rock and Roll Parts 1 or 2 or whatever it was called and then you know T-Rex and that glamorous you know Get It On, Bang a Gong you know it was all and but it was Alice Cooper doing Schools Out which was like the first moment of rebellion you know I was about 11, 10 and you're thinking blow up the school that's great let's do that you know so it was all those kind of moments and obviously you know then seeing David Bowie this is a little bit later because this is when Space Oddity had been reissued and then being excited because the B-side had changes and Velvet Goldmine and I was thinking wow B-sides are great oh those were the B-sides to that yeah that's amazing <laughs> those were, those were it was, rather exceptional B-sides it was downhill from there <laughs> You know, because you kind of always had that psychological thing of turning the record over and going, even side two of a vinyl record, you went, oh, God, that was a big occasion, wasn't it? You had to sort of, because you didn't know what the songs were, because they weren't probably the singles, but, you know, oh, my God, I'm doing side two of the vinyl record. And the B side of a single is often really disappointing. Well, I found that after the changes and Velvet Goldmine. Uh, Yeah. But, you know, at the time you think, oh, the lyrics are changes. This is a rather, you know, 11-year-old being a bit incredible you know that's 
Mm, interesting. <laughs> mm -hmm. No, I, I agree with you. Yeah. Um, I think another big mu musical influ influence as a child was the Jackson Five. You, you must remember those guys. Yes. Yeah. Right? Um, I don't know how popular they were in the UK. I guess they were, right? Yeah. ABC and Michael Jackson. And to be honest, we also had the Osmonds. Let's not forget. Crazy horse, crazy horses was, you know, there was that sound that they had, wasn't there? Which we, yeah, yeah. we thought was amazing. Then we had Donnie Marie, which was a bit irritating. And then Jimmy just made you think. Yeah. <laughs> so we did, yeah, the Jacksons. I mean, don't forget, it was often, we had three channels in this country, BBC One, Two and Anglia. So there wasn't a lot on telly. So Top of the Pops on a Thursday for 30 minutes a week was really quite a big thing, you know. Mm, mm, we mm. didn't have much, you know, there was no catch up, there was no streaming. So yeah, there was things like that, you know, you were desperate for the hearing stuff, but there was a lot of disco and I was too young for punk. You know, it was the eight, it was almost like the, the 80s for me, you know. Mm -hmm. But I suppose you had a sister, I had an older brother who was seven years older and he was in the prog and I was very fascinated with these kind of prog records and obviously he told me not to play them when, you know, but I would then go and sneak into his room and play Yes and Genesis, Genesis and Wishbone Ash and Bulky James Harvest and was really fascinated, you know, it was like, wow, what is this? You know, this is incredible which is a bit of a shame. You know, he could have been into the punk scene, but he wasn't. So, but I, you know, I have a love of prog, really. The good thing about those prog records, the, some of the ones you just mentioned, they always had really good artwork and covers, even if the music was kind of like uh, ponderous, like they always were presented very interestingly. Like, remember Caravan? They had those beautiful album covers. Yeah, yes. they old, yeah. So, Roger, uh, Roger Dean covers. Roger Dean. Yes. There you go. Yeah, so I mean, they, they did have something cool about them anyway. Yeah, and they did occasionally oh, yeah. have a four-minute almost rock song. I remember there was one called Don't Kill the Whale by Yes, which was quite exciting because it had a bit like, ooh. But then, you know, you had the orchestral sort of classical bits that they all had. But anyway, so I missed, I sort of basically then from there, it was kind of the 80s and then my kind of, oh, John Peel moment and the NME and the, I was the 80s kid. So what was, did it did sort of, did you miss punk as well? No, no, I was I was in college when uh, punks, punk started and I went to college right outside of New York City. So, um, you know, we we got we got it, you know, earlier than most of our country did. Um, the biggest thing I remember was the Ramones. I mean, um, that was the first thing we heard other than the Sex Pistols. So. Um, and again, the Ramones kind of follow the basic template of the Beatles, you know what I mean? Like short songs, catchy, you know, to the point. So um, I, I, I wasn't as shocked at hearing what they sounded like as a lot of people were, like the very people who listened to Prague, for example, you know, could, could, never, could never get their head around uh, Eat on the Brat or whatever. No. Uh, so were so you- yeah, I, I would say, oh, good. I was going to say with that that scene. So were you then picking up on you know CBGBs and Max's Kansas City and the Mud Club and is it Tier Three? Was was were these kind of places that you became started to become quite familiar with and and that kind of scene of like the Stooges and the New York Dolls and then Talking Heads and Blondie and and all the other bands that started to appear from that period. Um, I went in there occasionally and saw some shows like at CB's especially, but I never felt part of that scene. I was like too young and quite frankly, I, w I didn't feel cool enough. You know, that was like, 
imagine New York City in 1977, you know, going into a room like that has like Patti Smith in it. You know what I mean? That, that's like intimidating, dude. You know, that's not, yeah. that's not something easy to do. But I, I, I appreciated it and I watched it, you know. Yes, absolutely. I, I learned from it. You know? So when did you start sort of progressing from just being the, the sort of the, like me, being the pop fan, to sort of your first, you know, musical instrument and starting to write songs? Well, I, I always wrote songs in my head, but my sister gave me her guitar. She had like an acoustic, like a classical guitar when I was a junior in high school, which makes me like 16, I guess. And um, I got a chord book, you know, of Neil Young songs. And I just kind of taught myself how to play the basic stuff, you know what I mean? And, um, you know, I, I was on the baseball team and when I, when I got that guitar, um, it became my new, my new thing. And I quit the baseball, you know, the guitar and my friend gave me some, some pot. So like those two things changed, changed my life or put my life in, in a different direction. I quit the baseball team and I started learning how to play guitar, you know, in my own way. Yes. And uh, so, th and from then on, I was like, I'm definitely going to, it seemed like a natural progression to be in a band at some point, you know what I yes, mean? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So was, was it, was it um, Neil Young's After the Gold Rush that sort of changed your life? <laughs> um, I wouldn't say that. I mean, uh, you know, his songwriting is like kind of mystical, like especially that record and Harvest and that period of time. Like, I mean, you know, simple, very simple chords, but the, there's a, a world of mystery within them, at least the way he put them together. So it was a great, a great first batch of songs to try to dissect, you know? What yeah, I mean? I mean, yeah, there was a sort of magic realism of some of those songs. And the same with people like Van Morrison as well. And then you had that sort of abstract kind of quality of David Bowie's you know, Ziggy period, and also actually Aladdin Sane. I mean, he did used to put some incredible phrase in, like, we moved like tigers on Vaseline, which I always found was quite an extraordinary line, really. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty bizarre. <laughs> so look, so we had the punk, which was very exciting. Then the post-punk period, which was Gang of Four, Magazine, Peel, which I find a bit too complicated and quite intimidating. And then indie pop came, 83, The Smiths appeared, and it was like, we'd had the Echo and the Bunny Men and a bit of U2, and uh, big country, but there was definitely in this country from 83 to 87, the Smiths were here and there was suddenly like, I know you had the mainstream charts with, you know, Tina Turner, Dire Straits and Frankie Goes to Hollywood and Duran Duran, Spandau Ballet, Chade as well. But then us indie kids who were all awkward and shy and, and pathetic, me, um, we, we were, you know, the Smiths were there and it was like, wow, that's our scene. And suddenly you had all these bands, like everything but the girl and the June Brides and then, you know, the go-betweens and the Triffids. And suddenly, you know, for those five years, it was until they split up, there was definitely a feeling of, of wow, this is happening. So what, what were you sort of doing in that, that kind of glory indie years? Hmm. Well, I was very immersed in underground music then, um, both from my country and yours. Um, I loved the Smiths with the Smiths when they came out I was that first record I was just like oh this is this this is just beautiful you know everything about it and I to just as an aside to to this day my favorite band is the Smiths I think they, their catalog is untouchable absolutely and some of Morrissey's stuff too but um anyway um so like that um when I remember when uh 
what was it? Jesus and Mary Chain came out. That was a big thing. I went to their first show in the city. I forget where, where that was, but um, their 20 minute bratty backs turned feedback, horrible show, but it was an event, you know? Um, so that kind of stuff from, from, uh, from your country, then like discovering the Velvet Underground and Lou Reed was huge. And at the same time, the, the indie scene from America, like Sonic Youth and Big Black and, um, you know, those rougher bands and Husker Du and the Minutemen. Um, I lived in Hoboken at the time that had a club called Maxwell. So all those bands just came through every week. Dinosaur Jr., you know, early REM, you know, like so. I was yeah. a sponge soaking up all of it, you know, just everything. The C86 scene that you, yes. you seem to be so um, into, I didn't really know that. It's, that didn't get over here as much. So I didn't get it, hear some of those bands till later. Yes, they were, you know, I think they were very ephemeral in the sense that they were so quirky, like you had bands like Bogshed and Stump and Big Flame who were just like, they weren't gonna make a third album you know, they were just probably not even a second album, you know, they were there for a very short period of time. Because in this country, sort of around that early 80s period, there was a lot of unemployment. And if you were sort of left of centre or far left of centre, you really felt forgotten that you were just going to be, you know, like a forgotten generation. And there was unemployment benefit and Job Seekers Alliance. So a lot of people could claim this, I think it was Job Seekers Alliance, where you could be on the dole for a year and you could just, I mean, basically it was so they massaged the figures so you weren't unemployed, but you really were. So, you know, mm. you could just put down, I'm going to be a musician for a year. And they were like, that's fine. You know, you can do that. And but in that time, you know, obviously everyone, you know, they took, a lot of people took drugs, drunk a lot, were in the band. And then, you know, and we had those gatekeepers like John Peel, you know, you know, people would say, oh, I've got a single, you know, give it to John Peel. He would say, oh, that's a very quirky song. I'll play it, you know, because that was just perfect. A John Peel session was like, wow. And each town and city in the UK would have an indie night, you know, probably on a Monday or Tuesday, Wednesday, every place, you know, there would be 150 sort of alienated kids like me go, oh, that's very exciting. If anybody from New York, I mean, wow. No, not America it was just like that that kind of yeah my god you know Lydia Lunch she's an amazing poet we'll go we'll love Lydia Lunch even though you think looking back but you know you know what I mean it, it was that kind of it must be amazing it's coming from America but then you did have you know like Sonic Youth were just and and Husker Du like you mentioned were just extraordinary and Big Black was quite frightening kerosene so there, there was there was those gatekeepers which were particularly big in the in the UK and we had the music press as well which was kind of fantastic so you know, you could be a real outsider, but then you would have this amazing exposure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But you guys were lucky you had the enemy and Melody Maker um, as weekly as weekly magazines. Oh, that's incredible. They were so, I mean, I, like in the early 90s, I, my, a friend of mine used to buy them at a particular store in New York. And, you know, he showed me these things and I was like, what are these amazing magazines with the snide writing and, um, you know, there was a lot of weird attitude, like, you know, the Everett Trues of the world and such, but um, it covered such interesting music, you know, um, just stuff you never heard of, the single of the week, all that stuff. That, that was like so cool to find that. That was, yes. you know. I know, and it's, and then all the live reviews and, and the, and just a lot. And, it, and 
I think in its heyday, it had some like 100,000 copies being sold. So, and then you had, yeah, yeah, like you said, you had those two and sounds, which was a bit of a different vibe, but again, it was there. So then as the 80s progressed, you know, Ecstasy appeared, the Smiths broke up. Then we had that dance scene with, you know, um, Primal Scream and Soup Dragons. And then, you know, then, you know, obviously the grunge Seattle scene was really sort of happening as well. And shoegazing. So, so at this stage, were you, you know, were, were, how close were you to sort of forming the band? Um, well, before Matter Rose, I was in a lot of unsuccessful bands, you know, bands that just never did much because I think they lacked an identity or a unifying concept or whatever. So I think it was like 1991, I started writing songs that um, seemed like like what Matter Rose would become, you know? Um, and I think at that point I was very interested in, influenced by the Velvet Underground type of thing, as well as my Bloody Valentine, you know, in terms of not so much their guitar onslaught, but their songs were lovely, you know what I mean? Yes. Like they, were, they were very unique songs. If you played them on an acoustic guitar, you'd be like very puzzled by like <laughs> what they actually sound like without the, the wall of uh, guitar behind them. So those were the things that were um, like pushing me towards try, you know, this, the Matter Rose thing. I think. Yeah. And your time, the timing of that must have been quite that was straight. Like 1991. Yeah. So we were in the absolute never mind kind of world, weren't we? This was, this was it. But then you yeah. did have all the stuff on Sarah Records and the shoegazing kind of bands like Tallulah Cock, Gosh. And, and then Heavenly, and you know, a lot of those kind of bands that from the Bristol kind of indie scene, which were, you know, in the Galaxy 500. So how would, I mean, because those kind of musical moments are quite sort of interesting. How did you sort of feel with, as you were starting to form Madder Rose, thinking, how do we fit in with this? Hmm. Um, yeah, that's a good question. I don't know, I mean, uh... I didn't feel like a, akin to any of that stuff, really. I mean, like Galaxy 500, which became, you know, then they, then he became Luna or whatever. Um, yeah, I related to that, but I mean, I wasn't really, I, that, sorry, I feel scattered here. Um, I, I think our goal was to find someone who wanted to, okay. Mary and I made the first Matter Rose demos with just a drum machine and uh, guitars and Matt Verderay played bass and stuff. And so I think our first music was very, was a lot more innocent sounding than um, perhaps it turned into later. Um, and we just knew that we had like an interesting sound with the songs I was writing and Mary's voice. Um, we didn't know where we would go with it, but we thought it was kind of unique. Um, so we knew this is that we needed to pursue it and to try to like, first thing, you know, make a record, get a yes. single out, you know, which we were able to do pretty quickly, fortunately. Um, and that's how I knew we were onto something because we sent out some demo tapes and right away we got a couple offers to put out seven inches and which was thrilling. You know, can you imagine after, you can imagine after a lifetime of collecting records and looking at the jackets and so forth, having your own record, that's like, that's like pretty hip, you know? Yes. So was it the case that it was suddenly, you know, a bit like Morrissey and Marr, Lennon, Lennon and McCartney, you know, and um, 
Jacko and Richards, was it was it kind of meeting Mary that made you think actually this is this is this is actually a bit more than what I've had before, kind of special. Yeah, um, it w- the, our relationship has never been like Jagger Richards or any of the any of the <laughs> you just mentioned. But um, we knew, yeah, we we knew we hit upon something. Like her plus me is w- was a, a very interesting mu- musical combination. But our working relationship has never been. Um, it's never been like 50 50 it's either like you know like one of us is pulling the other one uphill or vice versa you know what i mean it's never it's never like particularly uh great <laughs> i mean we're friends and everything but it, it's like i don't know um it, it wasn't i don't it wasn't like i imagine mar and morrissey sitting in one of their bedrooms like making up these brilliant songs that's not what we did like i'd have a song ready should come over and sing it and leave you know what i mean that's that was more our relationship and is to this day yes absolutely but like a lot of things it has you know because we actually come on to that but you you know you have released an album quite recently as well haven't you yeah so that must be but yes but the 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 early years was because obviously you were sort of almost perfect for what we had in the uk with this kind of rise of the, the the guitar bands and also Unlike punk, which was quite male-dominated, though there were some female bands and artists, um, the indie band, the indie world did have a lot more female artists. But then you had sort of bands like Sleeper and Echo Belly, and there was just—I know there was the lad culture with Oasis and Blur, but but there was your timing was kind of perfect, wasn't it, for that period where people started to enjoy songwriting again with a sensitive edge. Yeah, unbeknownst to us, it was perfect for you, for you, for the UK and Europe more. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Like um, having a woman singer or a woman writer, or whatever. As a you know, as a up till Matter Rose, I'd always been in bands only with guys. You know what I mean? And that that you know, like that much that much tes- testosterone and like no tempering force um can make you know it makes it almost feel like you're on a football team or something sometimes so like um since matter rose i've seemed to always work with at least a woman or two in whatever group i'm in and i find it's better and it it, it makes it makes it somewhat more civil in a way and yes. uh, the, the different energies work well together, work better together than just like all boys, you know. It's interesting because I remember the the main person in Jefferson Airplane, I can't remember his name, but we, I remember him saying that he really wanted a woman singer because he just didn't want to be in another band with blokes because it just, you're just going to be a band of blokes, aren't you really? <laughs> you are. <laughs> you know what else happens with a band of men? Um, it becomes very competitive in a lot of ways, you know what I mean? That like men seem to just naturally compete. And, um, you know, to me, that's no fun, you know? Yes. So. There's always someone getting picked on as well, which is quite tedious as well. <laughs> but you had, I mean, one of the great things, and I suppose I'm a bit guilty of this, is that if John Peel played something, I would immediately think it had been sort of almost blessed by the, you know, the Pope. I mean, and he obviously picked up as well with the band quite quickly as well, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. That was so cool. that must have felt like, oh, okay, the UK are going to love us. Well, we didn't know the full extent of John Peel's reach when we had heard about him. Um, later on, we found out just how important he was to, to your culture. 
Um, we actually, he actually interviewed us once right after our Reading set. The first time we played Reading, um, we walked off stage and we did an interview with John Peel. And I didn't really know who he was so well just then. Otherwise, I would have been a lot more nervous. <laughs> yes. So when was the first time you were in the UK kind of playing live? Uh, it must have been like, I think our first record, our first record came out in 93. So the year before that, I think we came over and did a few shows, like based on some singles, um, just to, you know, get introduced and Melody, Melody Maker ran a little piece on us or something. Um, so yeah, it was probably 92, late 92. And can you remember much of your, because you did the job, you did two John Peel sessions, didn't you? Kind of... 93, 94. Can you remember much about them? Um, he wasn't there. No, no, he's, he's, <laughs> he doesn't he's... really go to, go to the... Was um, it in Maida Vale? Yeah, actually, yeah. That's one of them was at the Abbey Road Studios. Right. And um, it was just a big giant room um, with wooden floors, um, like some very reserved English sound engineers um waiting uptight, for us, you can say uptight, uptight <laughs> waiting for us to finish um, <laughs> you know uh i remember i knew what those were because you know they used to put out those records there were peel session records i forget strange fruit that label i believe yes that's so, right so i had a few of those so i knew what a peel session was so that was thrilling um that was so cool um I remember it was a long ass day and, um, you know, we had our usual arguments in the studio and, uh, but they came out okay, you know. I, was well, I know. I don't think you had on either of yours, the famous Dale Griffith, who was the drummer with uh, Mott the Hoop. I think you had a few other. No, uh, we didn't have him. I no. heard, yeah, heard about him, I should say. Everyone, apart from any drummers often had a good time with him, but most other people didn't, especially vocalists. Apparently he wasn't great on the vocals. But I must admit, the Smiths album you mentioned, it was the Hatful of Hollow album that I thought was just brilliant. And that was mostly the John Peel session that oh. they, and various other ones, which I thought had a great sound. So when it came to your first album, Bring It Down, um, did that, because you're, I mean, obviously you spent most of the 80s in bands and then suddenly the 90s came. Did you sort of feel that there was definitely a kind of a rush within the band and your own creative journey? A what? Huh? I said, did you feel there was a bit of a rush going on with the band? Not the, not the band rush, but just they suddenly, because I, I'm, you know, most people who are in bands, they don't really get beyond just playing in front of their friends and family and anybody else they can emotionally blackmail to see them. So suddenly one day, you know, it's like, my God, it's happening. And suddenly, you know, we're getting this play and that play and record companies want us. Let's face it, I mean, mostly it's like a, a glacier, isn't it? What you <laughs> see, you know, the bands who make it are small compared to all the bands who've never made it. So, you know, suddenly that moment, dr the dream comes true that, you know, you get a John Peel session, you play in Reading, then Glastonbury Festival, and then suddenly the first album's there and record companies are starting to, you know, push you around, not push you around, literally. Well, they might be. But then, you know, I just wondered how you started to cope with that kind of moment of thinking, God, this is becoming quite real. Hmm. Well, I think a couple things happen, really. Um, I think once, okay, a couple things, like, so once you attain, say, say your goal is to make a record. So then you've made a record, that's, you've achieved that goal, but like, 
then you look up and there's like, now I need to make, have this, my next goal is to have a successful record. And the next goal is to be even more successful than that. You know what I mean? So I think if you're ambitious and most people who have made it far enough to get a record deal are ambitious, you know what I mean? On some level, like you got to get off your butt and like find a lawyer and find, you know, get your tape somehow to the record company. So make no mistake, like any band that you, that is in your record collection probably had one member who was like, you know, that was their goal and they went after it, um, you know. So um, I, as soon as good things started happening, I looked towards what the next plateau would be. You know what I mean? Like, you know, now, now we're playing the same places as Sonic Youth. Now we need to be as big as Blur. I don't know, you know, that kind of calculus. Yes. Um, that was one thing that happened. The other thing that happened was, and I think this happens to most young people who have some success thrust upon them, like my ego, like went, you know what I mean? Like I was immediately, you know, I immediately considered myself like, you know, a very special human being, you know what I mean? I'm sorry to admit this, but, you know, I definitely got a big head about things. Um, so, um, and, and, and then yet another part of me was humbled by it all because I knew how lucky that we were to, to just have been at the right place at the right time, you know what I mean? So, yes. all those things. And you must have felt chuffed that the first album, Bring It Down, started getting comparisons to Velvet Underground and um, yeah, and got praised by Everett True as well. So you must have felt quite chuffed at this stage that things were generally going well. And you, you know, getting a producer, you had, was it Kevin Salem? Salem, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, and how was, how was your, the, the experience of the recording the, your first album? Because Swim had sort of happened and got sort of picked up by John Peel. And obviously this, this was kind of, the next phase, but this was kind of the big moment, wasn't it, the debut album? Yeah, well, the reason, <laughs> you wanna know the real reason that it worked out like that? So Kevin Salem was Mary's boyfriend at that time. Right. And the whole time, the whole beginning of the band, she was threatening to leave the band because she had her own solo project. And my strategy was, and Kevin was a nice guy and a, a good musician, so my strategy was, so Kevin offered to produce our first record and I didn't think it was a good musical fit, but politically it was a smart move to keep Mary in the band, you know what I mean? And somewhat happy. So um, that's how he ended up producer of that record. <laughs> oh God, it's, it's yep. all, it, it all gets a bit Fleetwood Mac at times, doesn't it? Oh Jesus. Yeah. So um, I don't know that he was the greatest fit, but um but again, he's certainly a talented guy. And uh, the weird thing about that first record is like, we always hated it. Like we were shocked when people started liking it. Um, I remember Matt Verderay, who was the bass player. We listened to it in my car once and he was like, who's gonna like this? <laughs> I was like, I don't know. But because it didn't sound like what we thought it was gonna sound like. However, I, was, I listened to it a couple of weeks ago and I was like, oh, it's just different than what I expected, but it's kind of interesting in its own way. It's like weird. It's a weirder record than we thought we were going to make like this. My Bloody Valentine meets Velvet Underground, New York City record. And that's not what that is. I don't know what it is, but it's kind of weird and, and kind of it's pretty good on, on its own. You know? Yes. Well, it, it sort of captured a moment and also 
as I sort of realized, because I often wondered what, until I was doing this show, and then I sort of became much more aware of it, that most bands have this five-year narrative, and in the UK and in, in the 80s especially, it was kind of get together, you know, drink lots, play music, get a single, you know, give it to John Peel. My God, a John Peel play, you know, John Peel play would then, you know, it's like fantastic. And then some random person would phone up in Bradford and say, do you want to come and play this indie night or in Bristol? So there's all these kind of possibilities that would start to open up for people. And everyone, you know, when you're poor, when you're young, you know, being absolutely poor is, isn't that big a deal, really, let's face it. It's, and the, you know, especially if you're aiming low, as we did in the 80s, you know, being part of that kind of whole, left movement I suppose the anarchist movement and then you know the John Peel session that first album so things are going kind of well in the first album period often before the reality of the second album starts to kick in and, and tension starts to appear and then the second third albums is when things start getting a bit frail now in the UK there's several things if anybody ever tours America they often come back and break out because America destroys them but the other thing that happened around 87 apart from the Smiths breaking up was ecstasy came in I probably mentioned that and then the next generation of teenagers want their band they, they didn't want a band from three or four years ago so obviously when you appeared you know there was a new group of people who were looking for their soundtrack to their kind of teen 20 going to university period so obviously you know you did tick those boxes didn't you yeah that's yeah, true you know it did come so following your following up bring it on with the with the sort of the very you know well-known pan, panic on did um, within that period obviously you know there's lots going on did um what was kind of how did that next creative process happen for you as the sort of 90s started to uh, dig in um i think i think i already had a lot of the, a lot of stuff written for panic on by the time bring it down came out um and we toured that whole year um uh, we did a lot of touring and we were just at sound checks and in hotel rooms we were working out the songs for panic on we were we were very motivated for such a, I, and we were also taking full advantage of like all the fun that was available on a tour. So it, it's kind of amazing. Our work ethic was was impressive, I would say, looking back. Um, and like we we came home, we rehearsed a little bit, and went after Christmas we went into the studio and recorded Panic On like really fast. And because we were like in such good playing condition we've been playing together so much that um it was easy to record those songs they're mostly live in a lot of cases so um uh we just sailed from one album right into the other it's almost like they were like of a piece you know what i mean because there was no break in between to contemplate it was just like we already know what we're doing next you know what i mean yes um, so, so that was kind of painless. That was the easiest thing that ever, we ever did, I think. You know? And you and you captured a certain zeitgeist in that that kind of period as well, didn't you? There was something kind of quite perfect, as well as the time. You know, because a lot of people I spoke to, it's all about the timing. And and when Panic On was released and was out, you know, there was a it was a perfect time for sort of guitar based bands with a female vocalist. You know, great lyrics, great sound. You know, it had a slightly, you know. A quality, a sort of an indie quality that people like as well at that time, because guitar bands were so kind of in. So it must have felt good. So after that, then what sort of happens with the with the band and the and the sort of musical direction for the rest of the decade? Jeez. Well, after that, we toured our we toured a really lot on that. So we'd been going pretty hard. 
um, for a couple of years. And I, we, we did this tour opening for Hole, Courtney, Courtney Love and Hole and all that. Um, and because we, you know, no one, everyone wanted to see Courtney, like people would just, would be playing our songs and people would just be screaming, looking right at me, screaming, Courtney, it was so bizarre. So we played our rock set. We played like our fast songs and um, we'd play these half hour sets and there were, you know, and uh, I remember thinking, I don't want to do this rock music so much anymore. Like that's not, I didn't start this band to be like a rock band. It was more for the moody, spooky stuff. That's kind of like where my heart is. So um, I remember thinking on stage, like our next album's got to be different than this, you know? Um, and that that's where it all really went wrong, I think. <laughs> um, so the record company, we were on Atlantic by that time. Um, they were disappointed that Panicon didn't really sell very much more than bring it down because it cost a whole lot more. So um, they were kind of cooling on us. You know, this, this is, this is where like we, you know, we reached our peak, but we didn't go to the next plateau. So we released a, an EP of a cover of the Jackson five song, um, the love you save. And, yes. uh, and, uh, that song, the way we did it, it hardly has any guitars on it. It was like mostly about the bass and stuff. It was like an attempt to like take our take ourselves elsewhere, you know. Um, so that's what we did. We made a record called Tragic Magic, and um, it was very dub influenced. It was very, let's be honest, Portishead influenced and tricky influenced, you know, with with loops and um, that kind of smoky feel. And we weren't good at it. We weren't good enough at it. And Tragic Magic is not a great record. There's some all right songs on it, certainly. But, um, you know, I, I screwed up. You know, that was all me. That was my idea. So, um, you know, I thought maybe people who liked us would follow along to our new direction. But that turned out not to be the case. Yes. That's interesting because I did an interview with, I think it's, um, it was Mark Saunders, who was the producer of the Tricky album. And um, yes, that was quite some experience to, uh, for him to have recorded that album, The Tricky. You have to listen to it to believe it because it's quite a bizarre story. It was, oh, really? He, yeah. He, was, he is quite out there as a character, you know. As a, sort of, tricky is. Tricky is, yeah. Yeah. He's <laughs> and then, funny enough, you know, as an aside, people would go up to Mark and say, Do you want to produce my next album? Because I want that, I want to sound like Tricky. And it's like, Actually, I, you know, he didn't really want to do that. You know, he said, I want to make, you know, clear pop songs. I don't really want to sound like Tricky. You know, it's like, that's just kind of a one-off. But he had to make it for various reasons. Not have to make it, but, you know, that it all happened like that. But it, it's kind of an interesting experience. So sort of that fashion of suddenly, um, yes, people wanting to sort of say, I think he got orchestral maneuvers in Dark saying, you know, we want our Tricky album. And it's like, I don't want to do that again. You know, I've done, I've done it with Tricky. I don't want to do, I'm not going to be that person. So that was the end of that. And did you, were you influenced by people? I don't know if they'd come along by then, but Cat Power and bands like that? Um, you know, I never got into her so much. Um, I think she's, she's cool. She has a great voice and all that. But uh, I personally, no, I, I never was influenced by her. Nor, yes. nor was Mary, I don't think. Yeah. So as we sort of got towards the millennium bug, and we thought that everything was going to stop, unlike now. Um, did you, I mean, as the decade sort of got to the end and you did Hello, June Fool, how was, how was that experience with it for you? 
Well, Hello June Fool was like a corrective. I think we, or at least I decided to just try to write songs for the band again and not like have this overt production style that we failed so badly at. Um, tragic magic so i think um hello june fool is kind of good i like that um by that time mary and i were a couple then and uh, we moved up to ithaca new york where i am right now and our drummer moved to chicago and the bass player stayed in new york city so we were like now we were a long distance band and um you know long distance relationships tend not to work out so well so <laughs> we'd meet up here in Ithaca and rehearse for a week and then go tour and we that's how we did the album we rehearsed for a week and we banged it out in four or five days um so it wasn't optimal like you know what I did learn is like a band if you're if you're going to be a band, you need to be a band, you know, you need to rehearse once a week or twice, you know, you need to like be together and like work out stuff together. Like if I just send tracks to, to the drummer in Chicago, like he's got to like figure out how to play along with my acoustic guitar. You know what I mean? It's not an optimal way to make music, you know, I mean, he can do it, but it's much better to be in a room and, you know, like looking at each other and, uh, and so forth. So, uh, Hello June Fool was the the end of it because um, it, we were getting tired of like doing the long distance thing and frankly Hello June Fool um, it sold a lot better than Tragic Magic but not enough to keep us going you know yeah. I mean, the business side of it wasn't making sense either so sadly you know as you said four albums and out yes and did the album cover I always loved the album cover actually did that. Did that sort of represent how, how the band were feeling at the time? There's a sort of a romantic melancholia about that album, isn't there? The cover. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a good point. Yes. Um, yeah, I would, that, I think we chose that photo for a very specific reason. You're right. Because yes, it, it's, it's kind of moody. It's kind of contemplative. I mean, there, there were a thousand other photos from that session of us looking directly into the camera and so forth, but that one, looking away out into the water seemed to fit the music best. So that's a good point you made. Yes. <laughs> as they said, as Joy Division said, walk away in silence. Uh, yeah. Something like that. So then, yeah, so then what happens to, I mean, obviously it's kind of interesting because as I mentioned earlier, I was, you know, Bowie was my first love. And then obviously over the years kind of followed him and then went back and listened to a lot of his music and then obviously reflected a lot of what he did and I mean he you know during his career he did bring out a lot of albums in the 70s he brought out an album a year and and made some real duffers over the years and stuff like that as an artist how do you also sort of navigate that that kind of period of sort of owning up to sort of albums that you thought yeah that wasn't a great one but then never never let me down wasn't that great by Bowie either let's face it or tonight I mean, the 80s weren't that great for Bowie. Um, so, so then, you know, yourself, you know, do you, do, how do you sort of dust yourself down using a sports metaphor? You mean like, how do I feel about making crappy records now? No, not now, but you know, when you, when the band finished and that had been your kind of like a 10 year journey oh. really, and then you sort of wake up and you're not, no longer in the band, but then you're still an artist. That's your, you know, that you spent your whole life. That's your trade. Yeah, sort of, you know, then you know what what happens next to you, with you over the day, you know, the next few decades. Well, um, after Matter Rose broke up, 
Mary made a, a group of solo records that at first did okay, but then had diminishing returns. Um, I made a record called the Jazz Canon that was more like tricky again. <laughs> um, and her and I made like an instrumental record and um, that was all in the 2000s, I guess. But none of it, we, but we were part-time musicians. We weren't doing it full-time anymore. Like we had to like basically create new lives, if you will, you know what I mean? Um, yes. So that was kind of, I think I was kind of a, I was bummed out. I mean, I felt like we'd gotten our shot. I didn't like, unlike so many people who had had a major label experience, um, they'll come away going like, if the label only did this or that, we would have been rock stars. Um, I think like we, we got videos made, we got singles out. Um, so I think we achieved the amount of success that we were supposed to. I don't think we were quite um, commercial enough or whatever to go up to the Smashing Pumpkins level or whatever. So I, I, I have no bad feelings about any of it, um, any of the major label years at all. I mean, don't get me wrong, a lot of people who work at major labels are pricks, <laughs> no question. However, I don't feel like we were particularly badly treated. So, um, you know, I, I felt okay about that, but like, you know, it was sad to me. Like it, it was cool when you're in the middle of it and you know the next song you write will potentially be heard like by a lot of people. That's exciting, you know what I mean? Yes. And um, so it took some dealing with that, you know, um, but it was, it was okay. I guess I was, I didn't have like, I think I lost heart and I didn't make music for a few years, but that was more in the 2000s. Um, but it, it's, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's hard making music that you know is not going to get heard as much as it used to. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah, and I, I think from what I can get tell and sort of can also imagine is that, yeah, it, it, it must be kind of difficult, especially when it sort of gets slips out and there isn't the gatekeeper like I mentioned you know somebody who's at least going to give it a spin and there isn't the record label or there's not the PR person even if somebody you can moan about you know there is just isn't, isn't even that you know this like band camp camp or you know sort of self-produce and you're thinking I could imagine it must be a little bit like okay you know this has been great this has been three years project and yeah you know it's kind of dealing with the reality of what it must feel like to um to have it just trickle really than just go wow there's a bit of a buzz i'm on the front of the enemy they love me oh no they don't they hate me oh at least i'm you know an oscar wilde you know i suppose it's better to be in, in the papers than not being in the papers yeah. but then there's no papers anyway so it's all a bit online so then how did and then sort of obviously like the return of, of the magnificent seven <laughs> you have that moment, don't you? Because it's interesting, because I've interviewed a few bands who, um, who've done the reforming thing with mixed results. Some have been okay. I mean, it's almost like they've really gone into it very consciously not to let it get too big. And there was one band, I'm not sure if I can really tell you this, where it really goes badly. So many, you know, they give up their day jobs, they do the, you know, we're gonna reform the band, it's all gonna be fine, and it's terribly bad. So how did, um, so did you, you know, when you decided to to get the name back again, what was the process of that? Well, um, what had happened was some small label um, offered us to do a single. 
And uh, so me and Mary put together two songs and then that label fell through. It all fell through. So we were like, oh, too bad. And Mary and I kept making songs just to, just to do it. And then we ran into this guy, Chris Gowers from Trome Records um, from your country, the UK. And uh, he said, I'll put out your record. So we made a little deal with him. And um, I wouldn't have done it if I didn't think we had the right material. But I was like, I have this, we had these nine songs and I was like, this sounds like a, a Matt or Rose record. Um, so we did, you know, we just made it. We'd like seldom were in the same room. A lot of it was mailed back and forth, you know, digitally and so forth. Um, so we put it together that way. And um, it, it sounds like Matter Rose, but it sounds a little different. Um, I think whatever we've learned, you know, um, since, you know, 1999, like is in there. So um, it was like a pain in the ass, but it was <laughs> worth it. You know what I mean? Like, because <laughs> I don't know, people weren't always like, uh, you know, not everyone was as into it as everyone else. So, um, but everyone wanted to do it in theory, but not everyone wanted to practice and make make it sound great. So, but, uh, yes. Yeah. I shouldn't say any more about that, but I mean, um, uh, you know, it, it happened because we were given the chance, you know, like, because this label, Trome, wanted to put out a record by us. It was like a great challenge, you know what I mean? It was like, can we still do this? Can we make something that doesn't suck? You know what I mean? Um, yes. It doesn't, and it doesn't sound like we, you know, it doesn't sound like we were trying to copy Panic On or something. Like, you know, I think we, approached it fresh in an artistic sense you know was it the case that it was very much like you you know you and mary have the baton to sort of make this happen made this happen because actually most a lot of people i've spoke to who have been in bands to be honest in this kind of norwich area it's not brilliant for music norwich really i mean it's good in the fact that you know there's clubs and bands come to it but musically there aren't a lot so there's a lot of bands who have never made it you know as in gone beyond sort of playing in front of their friends family and anybody else they can emotionally blackmail to go and see them but often when I spoke to the lead singer who does all the work he's just or mostly it's a bloke really fed up because it's like you know the brilliant guitarist is a pain in the arse the rest of the band you know might just at any minute just say actually I'm not that bothered so he's kind of dragging it along so you didn't have that quite that experience with this album no, not really. I mean, to be honest, Mary wasn't that into it. Like, she has a difficult relationship with Matter Rose because she has her own artistic identity, yet she's known most more for Matter Rose than for that, I guess. Um, so, um, you know, she, she came over and sang the songs and she did a great job and she made up interesting background vocals and she wrote a couple nice songs, but it, you know, she wasn't that involved. Um, she, yeah. Yes, it's a tricky, because I know I spoke to a guy, I think he's in Loop, and I think he decided that, you know, the band had had it, then, you know, still could make music for Loop, but not with the, the members of the band, because there was too much. So it's almost like he, I think he had a light bulb moment. He thought, Actually, I could do loop, but with a new load of people, mm -hmm. you aren't going to start to be difficult. 
and we could sort of make a loop record even though I'm it's a bit like Marty Smith you know as he said you know if it's me and your granny on bongos it's going to be yeah. the fall I mean do you feel a little bit like that with Mad you could have no absolutely not no I that was one of the other caveats of it like it had to be it didn't have to be everyone from the original group, but everyone from the original group needed to be asked. Like, um, <clears throat> it, it, I wouldn't have felt right just saying, oh, I'll just use this other drummer. Like I had to ask Rick Kubik, our original drummer, if he wanted to do it because, you know, he, he was sitting in the van just like I was, you know what I mean? So I felt obligated to ask everyone in, in the old Matteros to, to play on this. That was very important to me. Because, yeah, I guess Mary and I could get another rhythm section, but I don't think it would be the same, and it wouldn't feel the same to me. Like, yes. So everyone from the original Matteros, like both bass players even, played on various tracks. So, I mean, um, no, to me, in our case, no judgment on loop, but, um, you know, I, to make it real, I think it needed to be, you know, the real members, you know. Yeah, Absolutely. It, you, you give the impression that it wasn't, it hasn't left you with a lot of joy. Oh, I'm sorry. That's not, that's not true at all. Right. I'm sorry I give that impression. <laughs> um, I, th I think this morning I'm being really honest about, like, I think most bands, like, like most relationships are difficult. And, you know, like, especially like the people we happen to have, like all four people in the original Matter Rose were like really, um, real individuals and not used to being team players so much like most of most people were used to being in charge of their own thing so you take four people who are used to leading the way and stick them all in a band together or something and you're going to get some fireworks you know what I mean um, so there was a lot of joy but I mean um, there was also it was also difficult you know um, but not not so different. Not so. Di I mean, I'd rather do that than you know. I'd rather have done that for ten years than like have a job or something. So yes, well, absolutely. Right. This is this is <laughs> this is. So this is I, I think I'm, we're in the middle of making another record right now, so that's probably why I'm like, I'm like considering like what the relationships are actually like because um, we're doing it again right now. So. You know, it's sometimes frustrating. I think I have, I want to go at a faster pace than just like the other people in the band can go just because we're adults and we have actual lives going on surrounding yeah. us, right? You know, so I apologize if I sounded too grim about any of this. I mean, it was a great experience, the best times of my life. But um, I think your questions are leading me to like also examine things like at a slightly deeper lesson. Deeper, deeper level so sorry <laughs> yes so anyway on a positive note you're doing a new album so do you feel I mean just on a sort of artistic level because obviously 2020 if anybody's listening to this in the future and they're sort of doing research I mean you know we're, we're only in a global pandemic you know incredible political time and uh, you know people are going to read God knows how they're going to make a film about the last four years of American politics or even Britain, really. I mean, that's going to be a long film. I mean, how is it as a creative artist then? How are you sort of managing to juggle this? Because a few people who I spoke to, you know, some people are really low. You know, they're thinking, God, what I've always wanted was time to sit down and write. And it's like, God said, here you go, have six months. And they've gone, 
now I'm freaky and I can't do it, you know, go back yeah. to the, you know, and, and some people are, you know, there was a guy who was in the wonder stuff, Miles, his timing was brilliant. He did all the work last year, did the tour, did the album, thought this year I'm going to take it easy. It's like, oh, actually, this is great. I had planned to do it like this. So his timing was good. Other people were like, oh my God, the album's coming out and the tour's all booked and all the festivals. Yeah. And now I don't know what we're doing. So they're feeling very discombobulated. I just wondered how you are and, and how your songwriting will be during this period and possibly after November. Well, I think like a lot of people, like during the six month shutdown, um, I couldn't really write very well at all. Like I finished a few things I had started, but like it became this thing where like every day, you know, I'd set aside some time and I'd try to write something. I'd pick up the guitar, piano, whatever. And like, I just couldn't do it. Like, like nothing good was coming. I have like hundreds of starts of songs that are just awful. Um, or just boring or just not good, you know, whatever. But then like last month, something clicked and I was, I, I've written two songs since then for this album that I'm like happy with. And I think they very much reflect like the uncertainty or like just like the melancholy or whatever you want to call it or dread of this time. Like they're pretty, but they're also kind of bleak maybe. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's hard not to be directly affected by this this freaking world, you know. Um, as for the album itself, like we kind of, we were going to do a lot. We were actually going to meet in New York City and do a live session, like actually record together in a room. And um, that was going to I was very excited about that. So I don't know if we're going to get to do that again or maybe it's going to have to wait till next year. Um, but you know, I'd rather not do it remotely and like mail tracks back and forth, you know? Yes. So I really want to get in a room, at least with the drummer, with Johnny, because like, uh, or his real name's Rick, um, because I love playing with him. He's got like such a fantastic sense of, of just music, generally speaking. So if nothing else, I hope I can go record some of the tracks, it's just him and me at least. Yeah, um, because the songs are written for a live band. Like last year's or nine, the, the "To Be Beautiful" record wasn't. It was more. It was written to be recorded in pieces. I guess there were more ambient style songs. But these are songs that are band songs. So I hope we get to do that in some sense. You know? God, we all do actually. Coachella next year would be amazing. When it, yeah. <laughs> so look, just the last question. I mean, if you could have said something to an eighteen-year-old self. <laughs> that you could have just whispered as they were just starting on that kind of interesting and fascinating journey, sometimes a bit murky. I mean, what, you know, what have you learned over the decades, you know, both as a person, as a creative artist, that you yeah. would have thought, God, if I could have just said something to that, that person or any person now, I just wondered, you know, what that, that might be. Hmm. Um, probably one thing I would definitely say to my younger self would, um, I would tell my younger self to be nicer. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, you may remember earlier in the interview, I said, like, um, when we started becoming successful, I, my ego got a little large. And uh, I'm very introverted anyway. And, like, when you're in a band that's doing a lot of stuff, you meet person after person. And that I found that very 
tiring. You know, it's very exhausting for an introvert to constantly be talking and shaking hands and meeting people. So I don't think I was always as nice as I could have been. Um, so I would encourage myself to, to be more mindful of that and to be nicer, you know. Um, I think this world sucks because people are so mean to each other. And like, I, I think a lot of people who are mean are in their own, in, they're, they're in pain in some way, you know what I mean? And they're just like, you know, spitting that pain out onto the next person they meet. Um, but you don't have to be that person. You don't have to do that, you know? Um, so I did, that's, I know this, it's kind of like a, a quaint thing to say, be nicer, but I would say that. That's one thing <laughs> I would say. Actually, no, quite a few people have said the same, actually. Yeah, or, really? just, or just enjoy it while it was happening rather than feeling so. That too, right? You know? It was but... like, didn't at the time, went, oh God, actually, we were just having some sort of battle you know there was a member you know I mean you know without going through every band I've interviewed but you know I remember Biss the band Biss there was like no we used to fight all the time and then and then you look back and go oh my god I wish we didn't <laughs> you know it's like in reality actually we were having a horrible time but actually we should have been you know it's like oh that was a bit of a shame wasn't it it's like well, yeah, you know, after Matt Verderay, the first bass player, left our band, um, him and I were like best friends before the band started. And then we didn't speak for like six years after he quit Matt or Rose. We just wouldn't talk. Um, and that that's such a shame. I would, if I could also tell my, my younger self something, it would be not to do, not to have done that, whatever happened between us. But I will report that him and I are friends again. And whenever I go down to New York City, um, we hang out and I love him. He's one of my favorite people now, as he was back then. Um, so, yeah, being in a band is like, it's difficult. It's like being in a weird four-way relationship, you know what I mean? And like two-way relationships are hard enough, you know? <laughs> well, actually my analogy for being in a band, a lot of people say it's like being in a marriage, but I think it's more like running a small business with like four of the worst employees imaginable. You know what I mean? <laughs> because like, you know, four musicians are not gonna be your best workers, are they? No, I know. I mean, it's kind of, a, I suppose on one level, it's kind of a miracle anything comes out. I mean, obviously, again, a bit like the iceberg thing, I suppose it does mostly it doesn't we, you know, what you see under what you see on the top is just a little percentage of what happens underneath. But what you get on the top and, and suddenly those moments that something has happened and you have that final record or whatever, and you have that tour and you play and you sound fantastic. Like you said, you know, you, you're, you know, match fit to go back to your sporting one sporting metaphor, but it is kind of a quite a miracle. But you know, there are this, those moments that all line up. And a bit like, you know, when you were talking about playing live or certainly being in recording live, I always remember it was um, Black Sabbath, their first album. And I think they'd been playing it for years live and then they got record deal, went to record the album and sort of did it in an afternoon and everyone was like, and they said, well, you know, that's it. You know, we've been playing it, we've worked it. It's, it's like, we don't need to do any second take. You know, we can just play it live and you've got a classic, the classic, you know, Black Sabbath first album. And it's a bit like, you know, we match fit. We've been playing that for the last two years or whatever years mm -hmm. to, to thousands of people and hundreds of venues. And, um, you know, we know it back and front, you know, we don't, we don't, we don't need to do it again. So, and it's interesting being, being that kind of 
playing live is kind of quite a big thing, isn't it, actually? What do you mean? Well, I suppose, you know, I sort of watching various documentaries over the years, being obsessed about the whole world of music, I suppose, is that a lot of bands, you know, from the Beatles, you would look at, you know, talking about and you realise that their manager went, you're good, but you're not really amazing, but we'll send you to Hamburg, play lots, come back, you're already there. And I remember seeing a, a few documentaries about bands who just played a lot live, didn't get a record deal, and then one day it happened. And it's a bit like, it's like we, we learn our stagecraft by playing lots of crappy gigs, being beaten up, being things thrown at us. We've learned, you know, what songs work, what songs didn't. You know, we've, we've kind of done all that apprenticeship and now we're ready for it. And the, and the Beatles obviously is one of the obvious ones. The Stones did a lot of live work as well before they got it. But I mean, it was like Brian Epstein, you know, sending them to Hamburg. It seems such a random thing to do. But, but you realise playing three nights a week, three nights three shows an evening, sorry, um, you know, for weeks or months on end, you know, gets you quite good, doesn't it? You know, you do start to learn what to do and how to perform and, and you learn your craft and probably that's what they needed to get that sharpness, you know. Yeah, that's a brilliant idea he had to like go make them just play hundreds of shows, you know, I mean, yeah, that's, that's the thing, you know. Um, I, I mean, and as much as I've maybe sound like our, the Matter Rose experience, as bleak. I mean, I loved playing with everyone in that band. They were all so good in their ways and so interesting and unique. And like, we really listened to each other. People, we paid like, I could just move my guitar a little bit and up and like everyone would react, you know, like that would be a signal everyone got, you know, there'd be no need for discussion. It was, it was great. I mean, and also to remark a bit more about me saying like the negatives about being in the band I, I love all four of those people you know they're all like really interesting smart um people and like it's an honor to have worked with them and a pleasure to have known them and like they're all pains in the asses in in various ways but they're like you know they're we're all friends you know what i mean yes absolutely And that is the end of the interview. A big thank you to Billy Cote for giving me the time for that interview. Um, yes, for Matter Rose, as he said. There's lots going on, which is always very exciting. Anyway, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just to C86 Show. And also, these have all been um, archived, podcast. Um, so you can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.